the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finnett. We have a fascinating show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we'll be interviewing Lisa Newman, who is with the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. They've come out with a book called The Glass Plates of Lublin. These are glass negatives that were found in like a sp- in storage somewhere and depicting Jewish life in the city of Lublin, which everybody knows about Lublin now. It's called Lviv. And uh, before before the World War Two, this is absolutely f- amazing. These pictures that they put together, this is definitely a two thumbs up book. Second half of the hour, second half of the hour, we will be featuring a insight into the portion of Bichu Kosai, which is Leviticus twenty six and following. We've got music sprinkled throughout the show. A great story all the way at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. <laughs> Four Arabs who tried to ram into an Israeli checkpoint were arrested. Two Arabs were arrested for trying to smuggle 4,000 bullets into the West Bank. Israel's Iron Dome shot down a drone from Gaza. Hamas said the drone was a warning. And good news from Israel, Israel sent 2,000 helmets and 500 protective vests to Ukraine to help first responders in that country. After a 50-year break, Chad and Israel established formal diplomatic relations, opening embassies in each other's country. Swastikas were spray-painted around the campus at Kent State University. Explosives and anti-Semitic literature were found at the home of a German teenager suspected of planning a school attack. The teen is in custody. And some local news. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib 
introduced a resolution calling for the United States to recognize the Palestinian Nakba, a term meaning catastrophe that is typically used by Palestinians to refer to the establishment of the State of Israel. The Jewish caucus in the House requested House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to condemn the resolution. Arab-Israeli in the sport, Arab-Israeli kickboxer Loe Sakas won the gold medal at the International Turkish Open Kickboxing World Cup in Istanbul. Sakas was criticized in Arab media for waving an Israeli flag at the award presentation, but Sakas, who is an Arab Christian, said he is a proud Israeli. And finally, former NBA basketball star Amir Stoudemire said he is quitting his coaching job with the Brooklyn Nets because the job interferes with his Shabbos observance. Let's see if we can get Mr. Stoudemire on the show maybe soon. Stoudemire converted to Judaism while playing basketball in Israel. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Lisa Newman, who is with the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts. The Book Center has just published an amazing piece of work called The Glass Plates of Lublin, Found Photos of a Lost Jewish World. And we're just, without me talking about it, I'm just going to let Lisa do it. How are you today, Lisa? Well, thank you, and delighted that we've connected to talk about this book. Yeah, so this is amazing. First of all, for the totally uninitiated, because I had I had maybe heard about a such thing. What what kind of glass plates we're talking about? When I saw the glass plates of Lubin, I'm thinking, oh, they found some like some lady's uh, dishes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would happen if you do a search online. You'll come up with um, plateware. Uh, no, seriously, these are glass plate negatives, and it was a way that photographs were taken, um, exposed to the light, and then prints were made from the glass plate. Um, it's a long process, which I won't get into the technical side of it, but these were done by a photographer um, between 1914 and the um, 1930s, and all of these were but, you know, stored in his uh, apartment, a tenement apartment building in Lublin and discovered. And again, they're very fragile. So the fact that these made it all those years and were discovered in a, a pile of rubble in this apartment building is really quite an amazing story. Okay, let's let's go back a little bit. So how big are, now, so now I'm thinking uh, glass plate negatives. I'm thinking of like 8 by 10. How big are these these plates? No, they're not. They're probably closer to about 3 by 5. Okay, like the average size of a photograph mm-hmm. at, that, at that time. So tell, what do we know about the photographer? 
Um, very little. Uh, up until recently, he's been a fairly anonymous uh, character or um, the, the man behind the lens, as it were. And through the discovery of these glass plates and all of the work that's being done by the Grotzka Gate and by Piazza Nazarek, um, who was a co-editor on this edition, um, they're beginning to put together the backstory and finding out who this photographer was. He was a carpenter by day, a Jewish carpenter, and then seemed to have um, some sort of a business uh, taking photographs around Lublin. Some of the photographs were taken at his studio apartment on a staircase underneath a skylight, and most of them, as you've seen in the book, were taken outside. Okay. Now, just uh, for clarification, in a lot of the books that I read about the Hasidic stories and stuff, they talk about Lublin. They always have in parenthesis Lvov, which would mean that, which is kind of confusing. I think if it's in Poland, it's Lublin, and, and if it's in Ukraine, it's Lvov. Could you clarify that maybe? Um, I've always known it as um, Lublin in Poland. Okay. But, yeah. So Okay, fine. Good. Okay, so now... Um, these, these pictures are amazing. I must, I must say that I wish I took photography. I took pictures as good as, as this. This is, this man was an amazing photographer. Mm -hmm. What time period would you say these pictures, uh, take, take up? What are, what, what are the dates you would say that these pictures are taken from? Um, the date that the Grodzka Gate, who is a, uh, folks who are behind preserving these um, and really documenting them, say between about 1914 and 1930. Okay, so this, do we know anything about, um, that would be like Depression era pretty much in America. Was the same kind of same economic problems going on in, in Poland? Well, they refer to it as sort of the interwar period. Um, and you can see that there was a really vibrant life in, in Lublin at that point. Um, a lot of the pictures are of tradespeople as well as people, you know, sort of casually milling about on a, you know, on a weekend afternoon in the park. So, um, I don't know that it was a period where there was, um, you know, anything like the Depression there. Um, again, prosperity seems to be prominent in the pictures. People are actively engaged in everything from, uh, you know, there are pictures of seamstresses, there are pictures of carpenters, there are pictures of the railways being built, uh, trestle bridges being built, um, farmers, uh, etc. Okay. Now, one of the things that, that there's a whole huge section about portraits, and there's, as would be expected, uh, there are pic pictures of people, because I suppose it was the people who were paying for him to, uh, to shoot these pictures, is a lot of people have this feeling that Poland, before the war, was a totally religious place, and everybody had this like, shtetl thing, and they all looked like Fiddler on the Roof. But if you told me that these people were extras in a uh, a Hollywood movie, I'd say, yeah, okay, I could see that. What do, what do we well, say about family life and religious life and, and at that time, Lisa Newman? Um, well, I think that one of the things that is so revealing in these photographs is they really, as it said in the subtitle, capture a moment in time 
when um, you know lost a lost Jewish world. So this was again, I'll use the word vibrant world. Um, I think that these were people who were modern, um, part of a modern culture. There are portraits of some of the students from the yeshiva, and certainly the yeshiva was a major part of Lublin's um, the city and meant a lot. There are a lot of pictures of the opening of the yeshiva. Um, and again, I think you see people from all different walks of life. And what's so, I think, compelling about these images is that they're moments captured in time. Um, they're unrehearsed. They're not just photographs of um, yeah what what one might expect in terms of uh, shtetl life or um, you know or religious garb um, you see a cross section of people which is representative of aspects of that Jewish culture um, in Lublin at the time. Mm-hmm. Lublin really wasn't a shtetl; it was a major city, was it not? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thousands of people lived in in Lublin. Do we know anything about the subjects? Has anyone been in, tried to, you know, to do sports? since these were published and someone said, oh, that's my great-grandmother? Any, anything? Great, great question. Um, so, yes, a few of them. Um, and one of the things that we were hopeful for and has been happening is that with publishing the 160 of the 2,700 glass plates in this book, um, people are beginning to come forward and say, wow, um, I know I know that person. And, and a really wonderful story, if I may, um, attached to this is when we first announced that we were doing the book, we did a public program. The Yiddish Book Center presents virtual public programs. And we announced it. And within a few minutes of sending out an announcement via email, somebody wrote back and said, oh, the picture of the six women who are um, sitting by the riverbank, the third one, I think, from the right is um, my aunt who um, died in the Holocaust. It's the last known picture of her, and it is a picture that sat on my mother's, her sister's, um, nightstand. And so she was able to tell us who this woman was and a little bit of history. Since then, a few others have come forward. And um, Piotr is working with all of those people to build out those stories. They keep amazing records and are trying to figure out who's who. You'll notice in the caption, many of the people are identified, but um, certainly not the majority of the people photo- you know, whose photographs are in the book. Okay, let's let's talk about the provenance of these glass plates. If you could give me a timeline, let's only just uh, catch people up. We are speaking with Lisa Newman from the Yiddish Book Center. If you're not familiar with the Yiddish Book Center, I would suggest that you become familiar with the Yiddish Book Center. We've had Aaron Lansky-Ano two, three times talking about various things about the center, even when it first opened up way back when. And uh, so go on online you can, and Yiddish Book Center and uh, go check them out. Become a member. It's a great, 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 great organization. What they're doing to preserve Yiddish and uh, Yiddish culture. Terrific. But um, so we're talking about the glass plates of Lublin, uh, fo- found photos, photographs of the lost Jewish world of the city of Lublin. So take us back. If you could give us a timeline, if you could imagine the photographer stored these things away. In I'm assuming what might have been his apartment, 
and then died. And then sometime 70 or so years later, they're now in a book. Could you fill in the gaps, please? Uh, uh, to, to the, the best of my ability, yes. As you say, they were you know, taken between 1913, 1914, and 1930. And yes, they were in his attic apartment in a tenement building in um, the photographer's tenement apartment building in Lumine. About a decade ago, a gentleman called, and I hope I do justice to pronouncing his name, Christoph um, Jonas, was, uh, had a renovation team at this building, and they discovered um, this amazing collection. It was a trash pile basically swept to the side next to a wall. And it so was a bunch were, of rubble. These were, these were, he wasn't a historian or a, or a curator. No. He, was, he was a builder. He was looking to renovate a building, turn it into apartments, and cash in, basically. Well, yeah, yeah but he saw um, that what was there, and he was very careful and very mindful that this was an amazing trove. And he was in touch with the Grodzka Gate, and they were able to come and help, you know, get these it's amazing as i mentioned before that more of um, them weren't destroyed because again they're glass and they've been languishing and brooms were brushing against them etc so they went to the grotica gate and um and that was in about 2012 okay let me interject if i could please yeah could you explain what the grotica gate is the grotica gate is a municipal cultural institution it's in lublin poland and um, they were established, I believe, in 1988. And the center is really committed to carrying on the remembrance of Lublin's Jewish community. Uh, have a lot of activities there. And um, the Glass Negative Collection is one of those. And they've worked hard to really, really restore this collection and preserve it and digitize it. Um, the the place of the Grodzka Gate is basically a medieval gate um, that really established the Jewish part of Lublin. Okay. Giving people, uh, people should realize that Lublin was a major Jewish center. The mm-hmm. yeshiva there, the Chach, yeshiva Chachme Lublin, whose yeah. founder, mayor of Lublin, was uh, like one of the more outstanding yeshivas in the world until its close. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Rosh Yeshiva was the one who started the Dafyomi program which is very popular. People learn a page of Talmud every single day is there's, there's not a whole lot of Judaism left in Lublin. Well, I think that there is a a major commitment and I I think this collection is representative of it, of trying to um, capture that, that history and to preserve it. And, you know, that was one of the things for us here at the Yiddish Book Center. This was published by White Coat Press, which is the Yiddish Book Center's imprint. And both the Grotzka Gate and their mission um, and the mission of the Yiddish Book Center via White Coat Press as well is to try to preserve and to digitize and make this history and all of these different aspects of it widely available. And so that's what they're doing there um, to yeah, go back and mine that, that, that rich history. Okay, so let's go back. So 2012, the, mm-hmm. this box of, of quote-unquote refuse was turned over to the Grotsky Gate, this museum, 
And mm-hmm. uh, what happened in the ensuing 10 years then, Lisa? In the ensuing 10 years, um, this was found in 2010, as I mentioned. Um, it was exhibited, um, cleaned up and exhibited at the Gradska Gate in 2012. And they began the work then of restoring, to the extent that they could restore some of these glass plates, cleaning them up. And they digitized them in much the same way that we digitized the collection of Yiddish books here at the Yiddish Book Center and made them widely available. Uh, in about, I think, 2018, um, a wonderful documentary was made about them. And the, um, Aaron Lansky had been traveling in Poland and he happened to go to the Grodzka Gate and he saw this collection and was just completely wowed by it. Uh, and I learned of it when I was introduced to the documentary film to see if we wanted to screen it at the Yiddish Book Center. And um, our other Yiddish Book Center co-editor of the magazine we have here, Pockentrager, David Mazauer, also um, somebody who spends a lot of time working in Poland with scholars and cultural enthusiasts, he knew of the collection. So we decided to um, include some of these in an issue we did about Poland in Pockentrager magazine. And following that, I spoke to Aaron and thought if, if Grodzka Gate would want to work with us, it would be amazing to publish this book. And so that's what happened. So we work with them to bring this um, work to publication to get it a larger audience. Okay. How many uh, photos, how many plates are represented in the glass plates of Lublin found photographs of a lost Jewish world in Lusinemann? It includes 160 images, and I'll tell you that there were 2,700 images to look through. So it was um, it was a hard <laughs> it was a hard uh, you know editing process, but an amazing one because you come become very very familiar with these faces and very attached to them, and you can't help but wonder um, about their stories. Okay, let's actually, that's actually fascinating because my next question was, well, what percentage of it? But um, this book could be a whole lot thicker. If this thing could be like the size of an encyclopedia if it had 2,700 pictures. So I'm assuming, like, just like it is with everything else, the ones that were could not be restored, those were immediately put to the side. Um, I would assume it would be the easiest way of not saying this picture is not going to cut it because it's just not photographically uh, suitable for publication, I'm assuming that. So what was the next step after that for choosing only 160 photographs, Lisa Newman? Well, if I may, um, we did include some that are damaged around the edge because I think uh, there were a few that were really compelling, and we also wanted to at least show people how fragile these were, um, and it also reveals some of the process. The photographer, from what we could gather in looking at some of these images, also went in and did some retouching, and so that's evident also in the plates. But we tried to pick a representative sampling uh, of everyday life, and there were a lot of pictures that were taken in the same location, and so is you know is the process for photo editors. You you try to edit to get the strongest candidates. But again, the, the thing that we felt really committed to was to show as broad a representation of what this collection included. And um, there are surprising photographs in here, 
in terms of, you know, people dressed in holiday gear for Purim um, to people sitting inside their home having a Shabbos dinner or out um, in the park reading, uh, you know, a Yiddish newspaper. Okay. So um, how long did that process take? Whittling down 2,700 to uh, 160? <laughs> how many? Were, were you like dreaming about these pictures? Uh, no, I wasn't dreaming about them. It was an amazing experience to do this with the designer um, and then also um, to, you know, work with Piotr and, and Aaron as we were doing this. It was a pretty quick process, to be perfectly honest, um, because of the time frame that we wanted to bring this to publication. Uh, and I didn't dream about them, but I will say that there was a moment when I was at the printer and when you print a book like this, you print it on flat sheets, and then they're piled up on um, pallets while you print the next signature, and then they get bound. And I realized, uh, looking at them, it was, if I may, really emotional, because you realize you had spent many months with these people, and you realize many of them did not survive the war, and you feel like there is a chance to really, you know, honor and tell their stories by having this collection of work together. And I think that that's what the Grodzka Gate has done in preserving this collection. Okay. Now, um, how has this, this work been received? Is it getting out there? Are people knowing about this? Um, well, thanks to you <laughs> um, in spreading the word, yes. Um, people are learning about the book. Um, people are purchasing the book, uh, which is great. Um, we just sent a huge shipment over to a distributor in Europe so that they will be widely available throughout Europe and Israel and Australia as well. So we're doing what we can to get the word out there, um, and it's being very well received. It's, um, you know, it's just such, and I think this is what caught your attention as well, it's such an interesting collection. And, you know, as um, Aaron Lansky, who is traveling, otherwise he would be on this call, you know, with me today. You know, he talks about this in his introduction, um, the, how these images are so different from Roman Vishniak's, Vishniak's uh, iconic photos of Polish Jews in the 1930s, and um, the significance, you know, the ethnographic significance of this and historical significance. Yeah. And they show, as he said, people as they were not as the photographer wanted them to be. Okay, that's actually quite actually fascinating. I was not actually thinking about uh, the book Poland, which has become, I guess, the gold standard for pre-Holocaust pictures books. But so what how, What was the difference between the, the two styles of the two photographers then, Lisa? Well, I think, you know, Vishniak's intent was to chronicle a vanishing world, and he really photographed mostly religious Jews in traditional clothing. Um, and um, and again, as Aaron Lansky cites, he said, um, you know, avoiding modern intrusions like telephone wires and automobiles in Vishniak's um, photos. And that's not at all true of these photographs. Um, they really show the world as it was. There's something almost... Um, uh, sort of snapshotty in some ways, but I don't think that that does service to the way he's captured and framed these um, photographs so beautifully in taking them. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And looking through a lot of these pictures, you see people are sitting posed. They look just like uh, 
they went to the local J.C. Penney and got their pictures taken, which is what we used to do with my kids when they were young. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Uh, I thought the same thing, especially uh, some of the um, uh, class pictures of the young students, um, and they're all lined up, and the soccer players, etc. And um, there's something just quite captivating about that, and a sense of, like, excitement at being photographed and yet some to me feel as though he was walking through the park and just happened upon a scene and said may I take your photograph there and and I would just I, I would add to that um, as well that there are um, souvenir photographs there are some that are showing families who are um, off at a you know a vacation location um, vacation location yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Well, that's that's really wonderful. Okay, our guest has been uh, Lisa Newman from the Yiddish Book Center. Lisa, what's the uh, website for the Yiddish Book Center if people want to get in touch with it and, and maybe take a look at the glass plates of Lublin? Sure, YiddishBookCenter.org. And if you would also like to see the book, which we hope you will, you can also visit our online bookstore, which is shop dot yiddishbookcenter.org and you'll find the glass plates of Lublin as well as uh, a ton of other books including many of our new works that we're bringing out in translation through White Goat Press. Okay, wonderful. That's going to do it. Again, the book Glass Plates of Lublin found photographs of a lost Jewish world, White Goat Press. Wish we could talk about why it's called White Goat Press at another time, but it also has significance. (laughs) And we want to thank you, Lisa Newman, for coming in and enlightening us. And this is absolutely fascinating. And this this book is I'm just when I when I see it sitting on my coffee table and I just just take a, a half a minute, I pick it up and just get lost in it. It's really it's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, lovely speaking with you. And talk soon again. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have four. You're listening to Plaster. We have some really cute songs. I'm not a big, I'll have to mention, I'm not a big, big fan of acapella music. To me, it's like, maybe I'm jealous because I also want to go boom, 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 boom. But no, I've never had the opportunity. Um, but up next, I will recommend listening to these three songs coming up. This is Rafi Bar. He's an Israeli. His, this song is called Haver Shali, My Friend. <laughs> The art of the real 
Rafi Bar, Haver Shali. Up next, for your listening pleasure, this is a group we've had them on before. It seems like they're grading, gaining notoriety. It's Surly and Nathaniel. The song is Toka for Miyad, which talks about when the Mashiach should come immediately, if not sooner. <laughs> עוד יום עובר הוא לא פה, מתגעגע ושוב שומע, רק תחכה שיבוא. ולפעמים מרגיש לי שזה סתם סיפור אגדות, אבל סבא אמר לי שלא תפסיק Then from me, my 
epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulfinman, here you're listening to the Jewish Hour. Do we have, yeah, we have time for one more. That's great. This is 613. This is brand new. And the best way, the title on this is it takes up three lines. So rather than going through the whole thing, I'll let you guess yourself. And it has various artists accompanying them with this group, 613, who were, I just found out, were in town. They were in Detroit playing at a local concert. Found out about it too late. Didn't go. Sorry, next time. So this is simply 613. And we're just going to call it a medley. Israel, the Afahan, 
get healthy. At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. This week, the portion which will be read in the synagogues on Shabbos is called Bechukosai. Let's say it all together now. Bechukosai. It is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26 till the end. We will be finishing the book of Leviticus, which is why exactly what I'm going to be talking about, because there is this mandate mandated by Ezra HaSofer back at the beginning of the Second Temple, that the portion of Bamidbar, which is the beginning, which is next week's book, the beginning of the Book of Numbers, be read the Shabbos before Shavuos, which lets you to indicate that Shavuos is two weeks from now. Yay! 
And uh, we'll be talking about that in the ensuing weeks. Actually, we'll be talking about it next week because Shavua starts Saturday night. So it goes straight from Bamidbar into the holiday of Shavuos. One of the reasons I heard that Bamidbar, the portion, next week's portion, has to be read before the holiday of Shavuos is not because of next week's portion, but actually because of this week's portion. That two weeks before Shavuos, Buchukosai must be read before Shavuos. In many years, Buchukosai is written to, read together with last week's portion, which is the portion of Bahar. So it comes out this portion of the week would be Bahar Buchukosai. This week, this year, because it's a leap year, uh, it's they're separated to allow more portions for the extra month. And so it's just Buchukosai, which is read two weeks before. What is the major part of Buchukosai? Buchukosai, Buchukosai would be a really short portion were it not for the fourth section, which the fourth section has 49 curses. They're called, it's called the Teichacha. This 49 curses, I don't like using the word curses. It's called a klala. Okay, klala is, klala is translated as curses. But we've talked before how really nothing bad, no, let's qualify that, nothing bad happens from God. And God doesn't curse people. There's outcomes, and we're not going to talk about that now. But the proximity of the portion of the week to the the holiday of Shavuos. Shavuos, known as Man Matan Torasenu, the time of the giving of our Torah, also known as the Pentecost, the revelation of the five books, Ten Commandments, the whole business. Everybody knows the movie. The greatest miracle wrought in the history is the annals of history. Completely and totally changed the relationship between God and the world, between the physical and the spiritual realms. Before the giving of the Torah, there was a decree. The heavens are the heavens to God and the earth is the earth to man. It's a verse from uh, one chapter 116 in Psalms, I believe it is. Meaning that they were separate. Spiritual, spiritual, physical was spiritual. Comes now the giving of the Torah. And God came down the mountain. Moses went up the mountain. There's a meeting. Spiritual now can affect the physical and the physical can affect the spiritual. Now, how is it going to be that the physical can affect the spiritual? We have all these ideas. Yeah, okay, God can bless people. God can take things away. Yeah, so how, though, is the physical going to affect the spiritual? Let's just say... The spiritual could have no effect on the physical were it not that the physical had an effect on the spiritual. I'll give you an example. This is a very physical example. It rains. If it doesn't rain, you have something called a drought. Things don't grow and people starve. So we want it to rain. The farmers want it to rain, but... A farmer, in order to be a successful farmer, just doesn't sit around on his duff, whatever duff happens to be where that word comes from, because then he wouldn't be a farmer, he'd just be a sitter. 
The farmer needs to farm. What does it entail? Farming. It includes like plowing and sowing and uh, weeding and tending and harvesting, etc., etc., etc. These are all the things that are involved. What does the farmer need? The farmer needs the rain. But if it did not rain, then (laughs) even if, let's say, it, it did rain, but if the farmer did not do all those things that we just mentioned, if there was no seeds in the ground, if there were seeds but it was weeds growing over there, if the, he had just taken seeds and throw them on, thrown them onto an unplowed field and they would have been bird food. So there has to be this preparation for the rain to have its effect. So it's the same thing also with divine blessings, with this interaction that we're having. What is it that a person really has to do we're preparing now for the giving of the Torah that in two weeks it'll be like we're standing at Mount Sinai. And there was a call by the Lubavitcher Rebbe back in, uh, in 1980 that every man, woman, and child should go to the synagogue and hear the reading of the Ten Commandments on the first day of Shavuos, which is June 5th. Check your synagogue for local times. And to approach it with the same feeling of trembling and awe that they did in the year 2448, 3,300 years ago. To do that, otherwise just it's like, you know, went to synagogue, we heard some stuff, we ate some cheesecake, you know, fine, it's very good. That's like a field that wasn't plowed. To do that, to make it so that it's a something, we have the portion of Bichu Kosai. That the whole purpose of the courses that say, if you do this, this is going to happen to you, is not as a uh, a warning to that this is going to happen. I'm going to do this. No, 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 no. So it's punk for carrots. Exactly the opposite. It's really saying, don't do this stuff. Clean yourself up. Clean your act up. Get yourself together. Get rid of the weeds so that this way you can be prepared for the giving of the Torah. Speaking of prepared, we're preparing now for the Hasidic story. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep The Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Tribe, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Well, if you're listening on RabbiFinman.com, you're right there, right on the, the home page. You can get in touch with me. You can ask me any question, comment, or otherwise. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, iHeartRadio, Odyssey.com, wherever else you may listen to your, your podcasts, well, go to RabbiFinman.com, and on the homepage there's a contact link. And you can ask me any question, pose any comment or query or criticism or whatever else you, it is that you like to do, and we will answer you post-haste. I'd like to do that. I don't know how fast, but excuse me, we'll get to it. 
comes now to what else is on RabbiFinman.com. We have the archive editions of the show. We have the various things that I've done in uh, presenting Judaism in an entertaining educational way. And we have the very important donations page. We are at the end of May. And uh, it's getting, you know, it's coming in a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. But, you know, summertime comes, people go away. So I, we need, you need, if you're listening this far into the show, means you've liked what we listened to, so <laughs> you got to pay to play. Go to RabbiFinman.com, click on the donations page, donate to your heart's content. Don't like internet giving? Send that donation to the Jewish Hour, seventeen twenty-five Pinecrest Drive, Oak, for, excuse me, Ferndale, Michigan, four eight two two zero. Shuas marks the anniversary of the passing of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. Was a very holy dude, and even his passing was above and beyond. This is a short time before the holiday of Shuas in the year 1760. He he began to grow weak, not leaving his room so much, but he didn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't lie down. He would sit in a chair and his students would come in and he would still be just like overflowing with words of Torah, insights that they had never heard. And then the holiday of Shavuos came, and he was even weaker. It was his voice was was hardly uh, hardly noticeable. And he said, "I need to be alone." And they heard him talking. And when he came back and said, "Who are you talking?" And he said, "I was talking to the angel of death that up until now he fled from before me." But now he's happy as a lark because he's going to be able to take me soon. And the Baal Shem Tov gave a sign. You'll know when it's my time to die. I have two clocks in the house. The big one will stop first. The short after the small one will stop. When the big one stopped, the Baal Shem Tov said, you don't have to worry about me. Just take very good care. He gave specific instructions, which I'm not going to go into here, about what to do, how to bury him, where to bury him. How There's a whole story in and of itself. And then he began to talk again. And his voice grew weaker and weaker and softer and softer. And one of the students noticed that the small clock had stopped and the Baal Shem Tov passed away. That's going to do it for you. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week, and we hope to see you back again next week. Take care.
Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.